Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. Luke chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 27 through 49. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word, beginning in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, What credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive back as much. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye And then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and do not do the things which I say. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And let's focus our attention on verses 39 and 40. Verses 39 and 40. Here we're told that Jesus spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing his disciples and he's addressing the the overarching religious context of his own day. Uh, You'll recall that Jesus lived and walked the earth in the first century, that he lived in Nazareth, he did most of his preaching and teaching in Capernaum on the northern end of Palestine by the Sea of Galilee, and really the center of the religious life for the Jewish people at that time and really throughout history was further south in Jerusalem. And so he would frequently preach and teach and minister in in any one of those locations. And he also worshiped in the synagogue week by week, Sabbath by Sabbath. And so he's born and raised in the religious climate of his day, familiar with the scribes and the teachers and the Pharisees who were the most prominent, conservative, sort of Bible-thumping demographic in the Jewish church at that time. And there were various other groups as well. But uh, the Lord Jesus is addressing the difference between His kingdom and what was so prevalent within the Jewish church of that day. You can see that the passage that we read is preceded by the Beatitudes where He pronounces blessing upon the true and living, believing citizens of His kingdom. And He distinguishes true faith and uh, a true heart of love for God as is characteristic of a true believer from what was so prevalent in His own day. And many of us are familiar with Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. You see the parallel here, many of the same types of things that Jesus is saying in contrasting true faith with 
the prevailing mindset of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were people who were very outward in their religion. They wore uh, all of the required tassels and uh, trinkets and, and performed all of the ceremonies that were required by the law of Moses, and they, they made themselves to appear as very righteous in the eyes of others. And most people viewed them as righteous and viewed them as a lock to go to heaven. No question about it. These are the most godly people of the day. They make long prayers in public. They, as it were, whether literally or figuratively, blow a trumpet and give money to the poor. And they are active in evangelism. They're traveling over land and sea to win a single convert and to indoctrinate them in their own practices. Now Jesus is speaking here of the fact that His listeners need to be careful that they're not influenced by these individuals. Uh, he, he says, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? This is a parable, and it's not difficult to see what Jesus is actually saying here. He's saying there's a ditch to be worried about. We're all on a path. We all need to be led and guided. We're on a path that leads us through life, and we come to death, and then there's eternity. And one thing's for sure, we don't want to end up in the ditch. We don't want to end up in the pit. We don't want to end up under the wrath of God for all eternity because that's what we deserve for our sins. And yet, the fact is, there's a way of salvation. And God had established this way of salvation from the very earliest chapters of the Bible. Even with Adam and Eve, after they sinned, He showed them grace. He sacrificed an animal, shed the blood of the animal, clothed them in the animal skins, covered their nakedness, and showed them a way of forgiveness and salvation and reconciliation with Himself. And in the fullness of time, He sent Christ, to whom all the Old Testament books of the Bible were pointing forward. There's a Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. All, the whole Old Testament was pointing forward. But you see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were so focused on the, the tassels on their garment that they missed the main theme of the entire Hebrew Bible. And that is God's mercy and grace to cleanse and save sinners through the sacrifice of His own Son. And here, this Son of God has come into the world and He observes the state and condition of the religious community that God had said, you are My witnesses. You are My witnesses to take this message of atonement and forgiveness and salvation uh, far and wide and to be a light, a city on a hill, to be uh, placed at the center of the world where Israel was placed and to be a light to the nations. That's what they were supposed to be. That's what these scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law should have been preaching and teaching. They should have been uh, leaving the 99 as it were and chasing down and seeking and saving that which was lost that was their commission because they were servants and worshipers of God. And that's who God is. But these Pharisees were blind to that. They were blind to who God is. Uh, Jesus says, if you knew who God is, you would love your enemies because God shows love to His enemies every single day. Every moment of every day. However you want to define the enemies of God, my friends, 
the fact is, he shows grace and shows undeserved favor and goodness and generosity to, to even the people that hate him the most, people that despise him, people who, who they're, they're not even interested in God. God is not in any of their thoughts. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and then that fool sits down and eats a meal provided for him in the providence of God. So he says, if, if you understood, if you weren't blind to who God is, then you wouldn't be doing the things that you're doing and teaching and training people up and leading them astray to think that you're a good person because uh, you engage in some religious rituals or because you love people that love you. And we have a birthday party and we get together and we eat cake and we're around people that we love and they love us and we think, wow, um, what a good person am I? And I'm surrounded by good people. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus is saying the test of our goodness is whether we love people that hate our guts. Whether we love people and show patience and long-suffering to people who use us who use us. He uses that language here. He says, do you love your enemies? Do you pray for them? Do you bless them? Do you help them? Uh, are you generous with people in need? And you lend to them knowing that yes, they intend to pay you back. They have a legitimate need, but they might not be able to. And, and are you willing to be generous with your resources, hoping for nothing in return? You see, when Jesus puts us under the microscope here, it's not just the scribes and Pharisees. It's all of us. Uh, we all have a, a, a very difficult time loving people that are treating us in an unkind way. And we all at times have uh, struggled to give generously out of our own resources because we're thinking selfishly about what am I going to do with this and rather than thinking about the need of other people. But he says the, the, you, it's because we're blind. We're blind to this fact. Look with me at verse 35. He says, when you love your enemies, when you're generous to the poor, selfless and self-sacrificial, he says, you, you're sons of the Most High. In other words, there's a family resemblance. And God, the Most High, is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law and many of us, certainly all by nature, are blind to this reality. We don't think of God in this way and therefore we don't understand what it is to, to sin against such a gracious God. Uh, we find that these Pharisees were quick to judge other people and they would judge in a hypocritical way. They themselves were blind they themselves had lost sight of God and His mercy and His goodness. They themselves were flattering themselves in their own eyes and then they would go around and make themselves feel good by tapping everybody else on the back and telling them how they've sinned and being judgmental and hypocritical. But the fact of the matter is they were blind to their own sin in relation to the Most High God. And when this passage goes on to, to speak of a bad tree and of evil fruit and of people who by nature are as a thorn bush or a bramble bush, 
And it goes on to speak of people that have planks and specks and things in their eye obstructing their vision. And it goes on to speak of those who hear the Word of Christ, but they don't build on it as a foundation and they're destroyed by the storm. Understand, that's what this is describing. That is what it's describing. It's describing the judgment of God upon those who don't appreciate and recognize His mercy, His love, His grace, His goodness, His generosity. They don't recognize. They think to themselves, well, I'm a good person and there's these other people that have all these problems. And I'm so much better and so I feel good in my own eyes. But they forget. They forget that God is kind to them even when they're unthankful. And God puts breath in their nostrils and in their lungs and puts food on their plate even when they're evil and they're unkind and angry and selfish and sinful. You see, they're blind. Can the blind lead the blind? He says, don't look to these people. Don't look to people who have lost sight of God's true character, who have lost sight of God's true character as the only standard for evaluating our own character, who have lost sight of the fact that in relation to that standard, we all are found to be unthankful and evil. And who have lost sight of God's plan of salvation to save sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ whose Word is a foundation that stabilizes our lives and gives us hope that rather than falling into the ditch or being destroyed by the storms in this life, the afflictions in this life, the diseases, the, the drama, all of the things that cause anxiety and uncertainty in our lives, even death itself. And uh, apart from this book, my friends, death is the great unknown. If you don't take seriously the message of the Bible which reveals these things, if all you've got is yourself and your experience and the New York Times bestseller list, you've got, you, you've got total uncertainty. And, and what's going to happen at death? Uh, we're told here that you can build on a foundation that is secure and certain and you can know that God is your Redeemer and that Jesus is your Savior, and you can have hope. So that rather than verse 49, but he who heard and did nothing. See, all you have to do to fall into the ditch in one sense, I mean, you can be led by the false teacher, the hypocrite. You can be led by that sort of religious hypocrite and fall into the ditch. But actually what it's saying here is that when you come in contact with the Word of the Gospel, all you have to do to fall into the ditch and be destroyed is nothing. Just do nothing at all. Uh, you, you don't have to stand up in the middle of the service and cry out, God doesn't exist. All you have to do is sit there, walk out the door, and not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation. What's your foundation? I mean, what is it that when everything else is stripped away that you have, that you know that you have, that you, you have secure and certain, nothing can separate you from it, nothing can steal it from you. It's not your friends or your family because 
We've all experienced loss. We know that the people in our lives, as precious as they are, cannot be our foundation, your job, your career, your money. The Bible says it has wings, it flies away. Uh, even your society, as many things as we may appreciate in our nation, in our society, we're finding out that these things can fly away too. Our relationships, our resources, our name, our reputation. Many people in society today, uh, sadly, people reveal things about them on social media and put them to shame. And they take their own lives. In fact, more people are taking their lives in our day and in our culture than ever before in this land. And I don't want to speak judgmentally about that. I'm just saying, can we, can we admit this? We need a foundation. We need a foundation. We need a foundation. And if we hear this word and we do nothing and we have no foundation, my friends, there are forces in this world and in your experience, both now and in eternity, that will beat vehemently against your house and bring it into ruin. And so Jesus is saying, you need to be led by that. You need to be led by hope in a merciful God who doesn't give His commandments and doesn't send forth His preachers and teachers uh, to malign people and to beat them into submission, but to say, as Jesus said, come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you a foundation. I'll take away your sin. I'll give you joy. I'll restore your soul. I will give you hope of everlasting life. When you see My mercy, you'll be humbled. You'll be amazed at how good God is. And you will be humbled. My friends, we, we never see the, the reality of our disobedience to God more so than when we see that in the face of Jesus Christ in all of His goodness and mercy. The One who died for sinners and who looked at those who nailed Him to the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Is there anyone here who would say that they don't see uh, almost an infinite chasm between the love of Christ and the love of any one of us on our best day. How many of us here, if we were falsely accused and sent to the cross to have our hands and feet nailed to, wood, to a wooden beam and hoisted up in the air to die of asphyxiation and we were stripped naked and mocked and scorned by all of our enemies, how many of us would say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? How many of us would be looking for reasons to forgive people. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is looking at them. He has compassion on them. If only they knew. That's not how my heart works. And that's not how your heart works. By God's grace, hopefully we, we improve. But the point is, do you not see the evil and the lack of love more when you look to Christ than any other way? You can look to the Ten Commandments. You can read any verse in the Bible and these things will reveal sin to you. But nothing like the love of Christ to shine the light and expose our sin. Now, what Jesus says here in verse 40 is important for us because it's, it's not only that you and I don't want to end up in the ditch. I certainly don't. I don't think you do either. I don't think anybody... Now, you may not believe in the ditch, but I can guarantee you 
if you did, you wouldn't want to be there, right? Even if you don't believe in it, the fact is, whether you believe in it or not, if it's there, you need to avoid it. But also, if you have this love, if you're a child, a son or daughter of the Most High God, if you have that love in your heart that God has for the likes of undeserving you and me, then guess what? You're going to want other people to be led to build on that foundation. Other people to be led away from that ditch. And Jesus is saying here that uh, a disciple is not above his teacher. By God's grace, we ought to be disciples and learners, but there are ways in which God has called every one of His children to also be a teacher. To teach and admonish and encourage others. To lead them in the path of salvation. And to see them follow the path of discipleship unto eternal life. And he's saying if a teacher is going to do that, that teacher needs to make sure that he or she is not blind. And that teacher needs to make sure that that he or she is built on the rock and the solid foundation of the Word of God. And that he or she can set an example because you see at the end of the day, A disciple is not above his teacher. If you're seeking to point people in the way of salvation, but you're blind and you've got a plank in your eye and you're not perceiving God for who He is and you're not perceiving the reality of His Word and you're not obeying it as an example to the people you're trying to influence, the whole thing's going to backfire. The whole thing is going to backfire royally. It's going to backfire. And that's what Jesus is warning us here. Now, the members of the Christian church are frequently called disciples. We think of the twelve disciples, you know, Peter, James, John, uh, Andrew, and so forth. We think of them as the twelve disciples or the apostles. But if if you read throughout the book of Acts, almost on every page you have the reference to the Christian church as the disciples. The disciples, those who gathered together for worship, Uh, we find in uh, chapter 11, verse 26 of the book of Acts that they were first called Christians in Antioch because there was a gathering of disciples to worship God and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, a disciple is a learner. If you, in Greek, if you sort of tweak the word a little bit, it can mean to teach a disciple or it can mean to learn as a disciple. It has this idea of teaching and learning, but in this case, obviously, a disciple is a learner, a pupil, a student a follower. And the Christian church, before it was ever known as the Christian church, was known as the disciples, the learners of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. Now, the New Testament regards not only the professing adult disciples as disciples, but it also recognizes that the children of professing disciples are disciples themselves. They are disciples themselves. Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now that's a, that's a statement that explains the relationship between Christ and His church. The members of His church, uh, the body of His church, is in such relationship to Him 
that as it says elsewhere, when they persecuted the Christian church, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And when you hate them, you're hating me. And if you don't listen to them when they're speaking the truth, you're not listening to me. So he's establishing here the relationship that he has to church members. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He says, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Now listen to this. Whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Now that phrase, in the name of a disciple, is elsewhere translated in the ESV, for instance, as because he is a disciple. So Jesus is saying it's not just the prophet and the righteous man, the adult professing Christian, but it's even their little ones who are brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They're learners. They're learners in the school of Christ from the very outset. And if you do a kindness unto even these little ones, these little disciples, uh, because they are a disciple, you will not lose your reward. Uh, We could go to uh, Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 19, for the purpose of time, I'm not going to go to these passages, but Jesus essentially reiterates the very same thing. And then we come to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and he says, disciple the nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And disciple the nations. How do we disciple the nations? Baptizing and teaching them. Uh, When we baptize the child of a believer, even from infancy, we're not declaring that child to be born again and guaranteed to have eternal life. What we're saying is, this is a little learner, a little disciple, a pupil, a student in the school of Christ who will now have access to all the means of grace in the church and in the Christian family so that God can set before them the gospel in a uniquely powerful way that they might Uh, that they might turn to the Lord, that they might freely receive salvation through Christ. You'll notice Paul treats children this way in Ephesians 6. Familiar passage, you don't have to look it up. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. You'll notice in the Ten Commandments, the first four deal with our love for God, the last six deal with our love for others. And this is the first commandment in the second half. Paul's dealing with, in this passage in Ephesians, he's dealing with the second table of the law, love for others, honor authority, respect human life, sexual purity, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Uh, He's dealing with that second half of the law, and he's saying this is the first of those commandments in, in how to love your neighbor, and it includes this promise that it may be well with you and you may live long in the earth. And he says, you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. In other words, disciple them, teach them. They are disciples. And notice that he applies the promise from the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments to the children of believers in the Christian church. 
Paul doesn't have a sort of theology that says, well, the Ten Commandments was only for Israel and those principles don't apply today. Quite the contrary. Without making any kind of a disclaimer, he applies it directly. He says it was true for the children of Israel, the the little disciples in the Old Testament people of God, that if they honored their parents, that they would receive these blessings in the earth, in the land. And he says this principle applies to these little disciples in the New Testament church as well. I think it's significant that he even addresses children in a letter that's addressed to the church in Ephesus, to the saints in Ephesus. So when Paul is addressing the church and he addresses husbands, we assume what? That these are husbands that are members of the church. When he addresses wives, again, chapter 5, we assume he's addressing wives as members of the church. When he addresses bondservants, we assume he's addressing bondservants as members of the church. So when he addresses children and urges that they be discipled, it's difficult to avoid the math here. Uh, It's difficult to avoid the conclusion that in fact, these are little disciples who ought to be trained up and who therefore are regarded by Paul as church members with the same privileges as Old Testament children had because he applies the promise to them as well. Now, Christian parents are also disciples. They're disciples of Christ. They ought to be lifelong learners. But one of their responsibilities as disciples is to diligently teach, train, and disciple their own children. To to be leading their children. And this is how we're going to apply the words of our Lord that we read in Luke chapter 6. How can the blind lead the blind? They're both going to fall into the ditch. So parents, if they're going to lead and teach and train and disciple their children, need to know the Gospel and need to know the Word of God and need to live it as an example to them and to train them through their teaching, discipline, and example to walk in those paths of righteousness. Now, I don't need to tell you that the Scriptures command parents to do this. We just read it from Ephesians chapter 6. We're told in Genesis 18 that Abraham, God said, I know, Abraham, that you're going to train up your household. You're going to teach them these things that I'm revealing to you. Abraham was an example for Christian parents in that respect. We're told in the book of Exodus that after the Passover that God's people were to be ready when their children asked them, what is the meaning of this Passover feast? What's the meaning of this feast of unleavened bread? What's the meaning of this? And they were to say to them in Exodus 13, this is to remind us of what the Lord did for us. How the Lord saved us and redeemed us and how He saved me. Parents have a duty to proclaim these things to their children. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, you find references to children with respect to the Sabbath day that we're to teach and instruct and lead and govern our children according to that commandment. And it says that uh, neither your son nor your daughter should be resting on the Sabbath and seeking the Lord. Children are mentioned uh, in, in various aspects of the Ten Commandments. So we need to keep this in mind. Uh, This is crucial. This is absolutely crucial. And in our covenant of baptism, which Lord willing will be administering just prior to the baptism this morning, in that covenant of baptism where parents take upon themselves these responsibilities, they take vows, 
before the Lord to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But in those vows, we see a number of things that they're to teach their children as they're seeking to lead them not toward the ditch, but rather toward the path of life. And one of the things, the first thing they're to do is teach them of their sinful nature. And you see, we all come into this world corrupted by selfishness, by rebellion against God. It's not that we can't be kind and generous to others in a certain context. It's not as though we, we can't be hardworking in our job, but at a fundamental level, beyond the exterior, beyond the, the veneer, deep in our hearts, there is a self-centeredness, a self-righteousness that refuses to love God and love our neighbor the way we ought. And God is offended by this. This is not how He created us. We've rebelled against Him from Adam down through the ages. And we come into the world with that bent, right? Uh, you know, the kindergarten teacher does not have to stand there and say, all right, little Johnny, I want you to punch little Billy in the face for taking your eraser, okay? You don't have to teach children to do that, okay? It happens. Um, it happens. So, we have a sinful nature. And baptism reminds us of that because baptism is a washing. Let's not forget, it's a cleansing. And what does it presuppose if, if you say to your son or daughter, you need to go take a bath. Um, or if you're Presbyterian, you need to take a shower. But the point is, um, <laughs> you, you need to be cleansed. You stink. The Bible says that our best works of righteousness are as dung, are as filthy rags in the sight of God. We need to be washed. Our children come into this world, they need to be cleansed. And, and of course, they bear the image of God and we love them. And every birth of every child is meaningful and is to be rejoiced in. But at the same time, we recognize that these are sinners that need to be cleansed. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, who was a circumcised covenant child from his upbringing, member of the covenant, disciple within Israel, and yet he says to him, Nicodemus, uh, receiving that sign of the covenant didn't save you. It didn't give you a new heart. You must be born again. Jesus says, don't be surprised that I'm telling you this. Don't marvel at this, Nicodemus. You must be born again by water and the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit, when He saves someone, acts like uh, uh, water to cleanse them, to remove sin from their heart and life and make them a new creature. We need to teach this to our children and what a fit opportunity as our children are observing a baptism to remind them that they need to be washed through the renewing power of the Holy Spirit and through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. We're, we also promise in that covenant to teach our children the plan of salvation and the need for personal faith in Christ. We need to teach them that it's not by your own good works, your own righteousness, your own religiosity, your own generosity to other people. It's not by your own efforts or performance or comparative righteousness compared to somebody else that you are found to be right with God. If God should keep track of our sins, the psalm says, if God keeps a list of all of our sins and keeps track of everyone, and then we stand before Him on Judgment Day, it says, who can stand? Who could stand? 
The law of God is a mirror that reveals our disfigurement, our defilement, our sin. And that's, that's what it does, my friends. If you look at the Ten Commandments and it makes you feel good about yourself, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. Now, by God's grace, He changes our hearts and makes us more and more obedient. But in principle, the law of God reveals our unworthiness and our need for Jesus Christ. Not just to say, uh, you know, I believe everything the church teaches, but to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. And not just to say it, but to truly believe. Jesus says, you say, Lord, Lord, but you're not really serious. You're not really listening. You're not really believing and following me. He's not interested in outward displays of ceremonial religion. He says, believe, believe, and be saved. And they need to know their personal need for Christ. Uh, My friends, if uh, somebody told you that tonight at 2 a.m., there's a very large uh, muscular man that's going to climb in Uh, break your bedroom window, climb in through the top uh, second story window into your bedroom, grab you and take you out down his ladder into a truck and drive you off you know not where, uh, you probably would be afraid and be concerned unless I told you that your house was on fire and it's a fireman taking you to the hospital to be treated for your injuries. Okay, Until you know the reality of sin and the wrath of God and, and the, something that makes a house fire look like a candle, until you understand that, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't make much sense. But in, when you realize the wrath you deserve and that He was punished on behalf of sinners, it's a joyful occasion and, because you see your need for it. I mean, who would receive chemotherapy if they didn't believe they had cancer? Again, think about it, my friends. It's not complicated. It's not complicated or whatever other treatment that you would use. I know understand there's different views on this, but you see the point. You see the point. You go through a lot if you see the need, and, and that's why you come to Christ and repent of your sin. We're also to teach our children, according to that covenant, uh, how to read the Bible and pray. Uh, we need to teach them the value of opening the Word of God and letting God instruct them through His Word, the Bible. And speaking to God, pouring out our heart to God, knowing and believing that He's listening to us, teaching them. My friend, if you don't do it yourself, why, are your, why would your children get into the habit of reading their Bible and praying? We're also to teach them to keep the Lord's Day, to value the, the worship, fellowship, and profession of the church, and to seek first the kingdom of God in all their relationships. Okay, again, that's a tall order. In yourself, you're going to find that to be extremely difficult, overwhelming. But again, keep in mind the importance. Your children have a never-dying soul that will spend eternity in heaven or hell. This is more important than your career. It's more important than your um, uh, extra income, your retirement fund. It's more important than sports, it's more important than recreation, it's more important than, than your child's temporal education. This is their eternal destiny. And so you need to take the ordinances of God, the teachings of God's Word, and receive it and obey it yourself and train up your children in that righteous path. Why do you teach them to keep the Lord's Day? My friends, the Lord's Day is a day where you can push everything else out 
and God comes in. You say, I don't have time. My work schedule is too burdensome. I don't have time to teach my children and do all the things that I need to be doing. Well, I'm not going to say you're in luck, but you're very fortunate because God has given you one day in seven as a day to push everything else out and to seek the Lord and spend time with your children, teaching them the Word of God, praying with them, teaching them about the saints of the past, the church history, instructing them and uh, inviting people over to your home, Christian fellowship and involving your children in the conversation and, and not allowing all these other distractions to come in. God has given you that day. It says He made that for man, not man for the Sabbath. God's given that as a wonderful, beautiful gift to mankind, not just adults, but to all human beings. If you say, well, the Sabbath isn't for children, um, assuming your child's a human being, the Sabbath is for your children. It's not a liability in your parenting. It's an asset. Push the schoolwork out. Push the housework out. Push the video games out. Push all those things out and spend time teaching and instructing your children in the ways of God and in the glory of His work of salvation. This is a beautiful responsibility that we have, but we need to to follow up that teaching with example. Your children, and I'm, I'm hastening to conclusion here, your children are going to be watching you They're going to be paying attention to the way that you live, the attitude that you have toward God, toward other people. If you say, sons and daughters, seek first the kingdom of God, go to church, listen and worship God, and and they see you not taking those things, prioritizing those things, taking them seriously, okay? If they see that your interest in studying the Bible is far less than your interest in sports or your interest in money or your interest in gardening or whatever it is, they're going to see that really quick and they're not going to take it seriously themselves apart from God's wonderful grace. It's just not how it usually works. And they're going to look at your attitude toward others. They're going to say, how do you treat other people? How do you speak about other people? Are you a judgmental person? Are you a judgmental Pharisee, you're out to get other people and you're talking bad about them and, and you, you've got your own problems, but really you're intoxicated by the problems as you perceive them in others and you use it to avoid dealing with problems in your own life. They're going to see that a mile away. They're going to pick up on that. And Jesus is saying if you're blind to that judgmental, hypocritical spirit and then you go and try to correct your children, how do you think, you tell me, how's that going to work? It's not going to go well. I can tell you that. So you need to live in such a way where you're producing the fruit that you desire to see in your children. And you've dug deep and built a foundation. And you're a sinner, yes, but they see how you confess your sins. They see how you humble yourself. They see how you care for them and how you are a son of the Most High God, kind to the unthankful and the evil. And you win them through your love and your consistency. And yes, you have to discipline them, but you do it in love and with consistency so that they say, yes, I disagree with mom and dad, but I know they're doing it for the right reasons. I know they genuinely love me and they genuinely are concerned for my well-being in life and in eternity. That's how we do it, friends. 
That's how we should do it. And we need to repent and ask for God's grace that we would do it more and more effectively. And to be that effective teacher and to expect our children to respect us. Listen, we need to be exemplary disciples ourselves. Uh, The Bible says that uh, husbands are to teach their wives just as Christ teaches the church and washes her with water by the Word. Wives, are, are you a teachable learner in your home as your husband, by the grace of God, though he fails in many ways perhaps, but are, are you willing to teachably learn from his teaching and example? Are you listening to him and you can say to your children, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. And you can also say, uh, listen to me and heed my instruction as your mother the way I heed your father's instruction. Parents, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, can you say to your children, submit to us the way we submit in love uh, to the church and to the elders and to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Be respectful to us the way we respect the elders of the church. And can the elders of the church say to all the covenant children, uh, respect our authority the way we respect the broader authority of the church and the way we respect each other as fellow elders and the way we respect God and Christ on the grand scale. Do we submit to the Word of God in an exemplary way? My friends, if we can't say that, in fact, if it would almost be a joke, if it would almost be an utter joke for parents to say to their children, Uh, submit to us the way we submit to God, the way we submit to authority. If If your children would say, mom and dad, that's ridiculous. Now, you shouldn't say that, children. But I'm saying, if they're thinking that, or if they're thinking... Uh, you know, as their mother says, submit to me as I submit to your father. If that would just be so mind-boggling, my friends, we need to repent and get ourselves together. And we need to seek the Lord. Because ultimately, the Christian parent must be able to say with a clear conscience, follow me as I follow Christ. And I think that statement of Joshua in Joshua 24, it's famous. People put it on their wall. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But I just want to leave you with this, parents. He says, as for me and my house. If you're imposing things upon your house and upon your children that you're not submitting to yourself, if you're imposing things upon them and you're saying, as for my house, they will serve the Lord. No, no. As for me. Start with me. Start with yourself Start with your marriage. Start then as that expands to influence your children. We need to begin at the beginning. Follow me as I follow Christ. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are sinners. We are unthankful and evil even to the extent that You've saved us and perhaps we've heard sermons like this before and we've responded and repented and seen fruit of obedience to these things, we still, under the magnifying glass of Your Word, we find so many areas of deficiency and of hypocrisy. And so we pray that You would humble us, that we would even confess our sins one to another, even within our families that we would recognize 
that we all fall short of Your glory and need the perfect righteousness of Christ, not just in theory, but that it would humble us in practice. And that we would be not blind guides, but guides who have our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and upon Your merciful character, O Heavenly Father, that we may lead our families in that joyful path of redemption. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.